truck. So that's where the cyclist comment comes in there. So awesome. How's everyone doing? Good? Good? You guys had a good Christmas? Yeah? Good break so far? Enjoying the weather? No snow, but it's a little chilly. I'm hoping for snow soon. And uh, I'm heading to Canada on Tuesday with my family and uh, hoping for snow up there, you know, where they get real snow, the kind of snow that lasts and sticks around for a while and uh, doesn't melt within two days. And so it should be a good time. But I'm glad to be here. This is, uh, this is an awesome event. This is a great time for the body of Christ to come together every year. And we did this, I think, last year was our first year. And uh, it's just what an awesome time. And uh, Pastor Matt was with us last week at Genesis. And we had a great time and uh, really enjoyed that. So I'm honored to be here bringing the word. And uh, hopefully you get something from it. Hopefully you receive something good. And I hope uh, my, my desire is that all three congregations this morning would leave with something uh, real and tangible. And that we would be encouraged as the body of Christ as one church because we are one church. And uh, I believe in, in the church of Jesus Christ in Bloomington, Indiana, making an impact, helping make a difference in our community. And so I'm hoping that I can encourage you with this word this morning. It's a little different than I usually like to teach. I, I, I'm more of an expository type of preacher, and that's kind of what I'm most natural with. And, uh, but this morning, I kind of want to move into more of a topical realm and just share some thoughts with you. And I have a lot of notes that I got to get through to get to the main crux of what do I want to, dis- to discuss. So if you will bear with me, I might rush through the first part real quickly because I want to get to the main point. So if you feel like I'm rushing, just deal with it. So um, if you look up the screen here, it says, welcome to worship. But yeah, there we go. Uh, This is what I want to talk about this morning, kind of the big idea in my message, this whole idea of Jesus as the Redeemer and Restorer. We just celebrated Christmas that we know in the Christian world is a time where we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that the, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that he left the throne room of heaven on mission to come to earth, to be with mankind, to help us, to save us, to redeem us, but not just to redeem us, but to show us a better way to live, to show us the way of Christ. And so the big idea here this morning, I really want to emphasize over and over again throughout the entirety of the message is this whole idea of Jesus as the Redeemer and the Restorer. And how does that play into effect in our lives as the Church of Jesus Christ? And what is our role in seeing restoration come to this community? So if you have your Bibles, you can go there. But if you don't, I think it's up on the screen. Uh, I want to open up with this verse here. And uh, Romans 5, 1 through 2, it says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Everyone say peace. All right, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, when you, when you see that word hope or you read that word hope, what is the thought that comes to your mind when you hear that word hope? What does that mean to you? Anybody? What? What? A chance, good. Anybody else? What does the word hope mean to you? Expectation, that's a good one. What, what else? Assurance. What about looking forward to something? How many people look forward to Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving dinners? Anybody? Am I the only one who likes to enter into the sin of gluttony every holiday break and just eat way more than I should? I, I look forward to that. I hope for those days, all right? So this says here that we have received, we have grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this morning with the, with the idea of redemption and restoration, I want to focus in on this realm of hope, too. Um, a year ago, I was listening to a, a series of lectures by a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of my favorite all-time preachers, one of my favorite authors. And he was doing this series of lectures about 
uh, basically the idea of Christianity, the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. And the overriding theme that he was talking about is that the difference, the thing that makes Christianity different from all these other religions is that we have all these good religions out in the world, but what they do is they simply do this. They offer what's called good counsel, right? And then what Christianity does is it doesn't offer just good counsel, but what it does, it, it offers good news. And the difference of this is that good counsel is simply this. It's a, a advice on what needs to be done so that we may obtain something or we may receive something. So when you receive good advice or good counsel, you're receiving something that you should do or that you should implement so that you can obtain. But the good news of Christianity isn't something that we, uh, good counsel that we receive so we may obtain, but the, the good news is that uh, something has been done for us. There is an announcement of good news that has already been done for us so that we may obtain. And so we see here that the difference between Christianity and all these other religions is that it's not just a message about good counsel, right, good rules, laws, things you should do and do, don't do, and if you follow by that, then you will obtain this stuff. But good news is an announcement about what has been done for us. Everyone say amen, all right, just so we can be interactive. That's good, all right. Um, so it's an announcement about what has been done for us. This Christmas season that we just came through, the celebration of the time of the incarnation of Christ, that, that is a time for the church to celebrate the good news that Jesus came to earth, right? That he left heaven, he left the throne room of heaven, and he entered into this messed up, fallen world. How many people think that is, that is good news? All right, how many people are glad that Jesus left heaven and came to earth? All right, it's very important. That is good news. And so that's the importance of, of Christianity. And so when we speak about good news and we talk about the good news of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, uh, what do we mean by that as Christians? When we say we believe in good news, what is that? Well, many people, they, they immediately go to the time of Christmas and the incarnation. Jesus came to earth. Some people, they always go to the cross. They always go to, well, Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and uh, therefore we have been redeemed because of that. And he resurrected from the grave, and he lives, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so for them, when you say good news, uh, that is what they mean. And I believe that those things are very important when we talk about this realm of good news and this aspect of good news. But I want you to understand this, that I believe when you look at Scripture, that the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation actually speaks of this good news. That the good news is not just found in the Gospels. Now, I believe that's probably the climax of the story. But in the Bible, we have all these small stories that also speak of an overriding story of one big story that is all about good news, the entirety of Scripture. And when you read the Scriptures, I believe, I believe that you find four predominant narratives in Scripture, and they are this. They are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so from Genesis to Revelation, as you read these small stories, I believe you will see that all these small stories in Scripture, they fall into these categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go to the beginning of the Bible, let's go to Genesis, and I want to see from Genesis to Revelation what the entirety of what I believe this good news actually is. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and I believe... When we read in the beginning of creation, we, we find this, this, this uh, idea, this, this Hebrew word here um, called shalom that we see in the Garden of Eden. And I, I kind of want to look at it for a moment here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 yeah, and 28 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And you should have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. Now in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we read this. The Lord God then took the man, and watch this, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Everyone say work. All right. So he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So what we read here in the beginning of the, this, this great story that we find in Scripture is that God um, creates the heavens and the earth. However he does it, I don't know. None of you know. And so if we try to argue about how we know, it's just pointless. But we know that somewhere in the beginning, God creates. Right? He creates. And then he creates man, and it says in the Scripture that he is created in his image. And I love it. He puts them in this garden called Eden. And in this garden, we find this. We find this, this perfect peace and harmony. We find that this garden is full of goodness. We find that this garden is full of life. We see in the garden that it represents purity. It represents rest. It represents fruitfulness. We see that in this garden, there is no destruction or sin. Everything is good. Everything is right. Everything is perfect. We see that this garden, interesting, is something that was to be cultivated and worked. Many people think that work is actually a result of the curse of the fall, but we see in the garden before the fall that they were called to what? To work it, to keep it. We see in the garden that they were called to steward it. meant they were given a responsibility to create this beauty and to expand the boundaries of this garden. Now, outside the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, we have no idea what the world was like. We don't know, right? The Bible doesn't say it. We, we have speculation, but we, we really don't know. But we know that Adam and Eve are put into this garden, this place that represents, the Hebrew word, this perfectness of shalom. Now, when I say the word shalom, many people immediately think what? Peace. But I want you to understand that when you look biblically at the word shalom, it's so much bigger than just peace. All right? This, this, this word shalom, it, it's really a comparison or representation of this Garden of Eden experience, what God's original plan was for mankind. And he said that it was it was what? It was good. It was very good. And so Adam and Eve are put in this garden, and they are given this responsibility, and they are given this, this stewardship of this place. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Grand Rapids, in his book, What is the Mission of the Church? He says this, Shalom means something more like wholeness, completeness, soundness, and well-being. At its most robust, the word points to a situation in which God's authority and rule are absolute, where his creation, which is all of us here, right, in which his creations, including human beings, exist in right relationships with him and each other, and where there is no separation between God and man because of sin. And so the first narrative we see in the Bible is that of creation, and it is beautiful, it is good, it is awesome, and it is God's original plan. Now, the second narrative, it doesn't take us many chapters to get into. We go right into chapter 3 of Genesis, and we see the second narrative. It's what? It's called the fall, right? And we've read the story so many times before, and we learned about it. Probably anybody grow up in the church and go to Sunday school, 
all right, and you had the little pictures and the images, and the, what are those, what are called flannel graphs and stuff like that, where you had all, now you, okay. Um, so Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall, and here we, we have this, in Genesis 3, 1, 13, now the serpent, who we believe is probably the, the devil, right, okay, good, all right, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say ye shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, this is kind of a side note, not really in, in my notes, but um, I believe that every one of us, as human beings, we struggle with sin. Can anyone confess? Yeah, good. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'm going two, three. Thank you. I see that hand. I see it. Good. All right, every one of us, the reality is we struggle with sin. And many times we struggle with the same sin over and over and over again. And many times we think, man, the enemy, he just, he really knows how to get me to fall into temptation. I believe when you look at the scripture and see where the enemy tries to entice people, um, his ways are not that tricky. The first way that you see right here in Genesis 3 that the enemy consistently uses to get people to fall into sin is simply this. Doubt what God has said to you. Right? He says to the woman, he says, did God really say? And so he's getting the woman to call into question the rule and the authority of God. And for many of us, I know in my life personally, uh, a lot of the sin that I struggle with is just simply this. I, I doubt continually what God has told me. He has told me. He has said to me. He has given me his word. He has given me his scripture. And, and I try to kind of talk my way out of it and even call into question and say, really, God, is that, is that you or am I just, you know, and we, we, we doubt it. We question it. Right, let's go on. Side note. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden. And so I was afraid, I was naked, and so I hid myself. How often is that re the result of sin in our lives, right? We sin, we mess up, what do we do? Fear comes over us, anxiety comes over us. And especially I think sometimes as men, we really tend to do this. We have the tendency then to hide because we're afraid. Right? And we see this right from the beginning in Genesis. We see that the, he was afraid, he was ashamed, and so he what? He hid himself. Right? Same cycle. So he hid himself. He said, who told you that you were naked? For you have eaten of the tree, tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me. I love that. So typical of men, right? Uh, who, who did it? And the man goes, the woman. Right? The, the, the blame shift game. It's like, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. Even though I was there with her and I was given the responsibility of stewardship and tech, all these things and guardianship. But it, 
the woman's fault. Anybody ever done that before? Played the blame game? Yeah, husbands? Anybody? Man, you guys are better than me. All right. So, and she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said what? The, the snake, the, the serpent, right? It's this typical blame game. Everyone's trying to blame blame the woman, blame the man, blame the devil. Uh, I, grew up in a charisma, I grew up in a charismatic church, a classical Pentecostal church, and so this is very typical amongst our tribe is to always blame the devil for everything bad that happens, right? It must have been the devil, that dirty devil, and half the time, no, it wasn't the devil. It was you, you idiot. You did it. So it had nothing to do with the devil, right? But, but we see this right in Genesis. We see this in the fall. No, I love it because even in the beginning, uh, in Genesis 3, even though man has rebelled against God, mankind has rebelled against God, man has basically said in the garden, God, I don't need your ways. I'm fine by myself. I don't need to listen to you. What we see is that even in the midst of that, God comes and he gives a promise of redemption to Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis 3.15, we, we, we read this. It's theologically what's called the, the proto-evangelium or the promise of redemption. And, and, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we believe that God has given kind of a prophetic declaration that the one is coming who will provide redemption and he will dominate, he will overpower and overthrow the way of the serpent, right? And so even in Genesis 3, we see this, this promise. And so reading again, Genesis 3, 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And so Genesis 3, it really ends uh, with man and woman in exile from God. There is this, this separation and the relationship, the shalom of God, this, this perfection, this completeness, uh, this, this beauty, this thing has been destroyed. It, it has been broken. And so Genesis 3, it, it ends with this discouragement, this frustration that what God had originally created is now broken and there's enmity between man and God and there's this, this separation. And so when you read the entirety of the Old Testament, and read all those weird books in the Bible that say a lot of really weird stuff that sometimes we just don't understand why it's there. What you're seeing is you're seeing this overall narrative, a picture of mankind trying to restore through its own methods, right relationship with its creator. In the entirety of the Old Testament, it reveals mankind trying in their own methods, in their own, own ways, to make right what was broken. And we see also that throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God is simply revealing to mankind, your ways are not good enough. Your methods are not good enough. You in and of yourself cannot obtain what only I can provide for you. And so he's saying that there is one that has to come and, and provide the redemption, which is the third overall narrative of Scripture. And so you flash forward into the New Testament, and our man Jesus Christ comes on the scene. Right? He comes in the form of a babe born in the manger, all this beautiful stuff. He lives a good life. And then he's getting ready to embark on this journey of ministry where he's going to begin to announce what is being accomplished, why he is, he is here, why he has come. And we read in Matthew 4, before he embarks on this, this ministry journey, we see, once again, this interaction between Jesus, who, uh, who, who we know is really the second Adam, right? This interaction between Jesus and who? serpent the enemy 
the devil, right? And so here we go, Matthew 1.11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God. Now, remember back in, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, the, the thing called into question was simply this. Doubt what God has said to you. And a lot of sin we struggle with falls in that category. Here we see the enemy again coming to Jesus, and what does he do? He says, if you are the Son of God. You know where a lot of our sin also falls into? Simply doubting who we are in God. Every one of us in this room that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible speaks of us being sons and daughters of a living God. Sons and daughters. That means we have been adopted into his family, that he is our heavenly father, that we are his children. And because of that, we have beautiful promises. We have beautiful things in store for our lives. And many times the reason that we continually struggle with sin is because we just begin to question and doubt who we are in God. Right? We doubt who we are. We're sons. We're daughters. We have a heavenly father who is good, who is gracious, who is loving who is compassionate, who has provided a way for us, right? So we see that. He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him into a very high mountain. And I love this. He, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And I believe here what the, what the devil is doing is he's, he's basically basically alluding back to the story in, in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve are put in the garden to cultivate. They're given dominion. And when they sin, they surrender the keys of authority and dominion over to who? The serpent. And so the enemy comes to Jesus, and he, 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 he gives it before him, and he says, see all the kingdoms that I have rule over? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and gave me the authority over this world? Yeah, I'll give that to you but you have to fall down and worship me. Okay, so he's got this, this big ego problem. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus, we read, he goes and he takes the scroll of Isaiah before he embarking on this ministry, and he says this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news. Now once again, the good news isn't just found in the Gospels, but we're saying that it's in the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to restoration, or creation to consummation. There's this picture of good news. And so he says, he has I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus, he begins his earthly ministry, and everywhere he goes, 
you read about him in the Gospels teaching about this concept of the kingdom of heaven, or really in the Hebrew, this idea of shalom. And he continually makes this proclamation all throughout the Gospels. He says that the kingdom of heaven is not something that is far off, or shalom and restoration is not something that is far off. But Jesus says in the Gospels that the kingdom of heaven is what? It is at hand. It's here. It's now. It's upon. And my kingdom is within you. And he's, he's saying that, guys, it's not something that's way off in the distance, but I'm here, I'm announcing, I'm giving you this good news that shalom is going to be restored because of my work. Not because of your work, because your work in the Old Testament didn't work. But because of my work, I'm here to restore all things. And so the kingdom that Jesus teaches and announces is one that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about. He said that it would be a kingdom of what? Of of peace, of shalom. It would be one that would have no end. And in essence, Jesus, he is announcing that he is here once again to make things right between creation, creation, sorry, and its creator. He is here to restore shalom. And so Jesus, he, he lives this perfect life of obedience, and he willingly submits himself to being crucified on the cross at Calvary. It wasn't that, that he... His plan was trumped, and he wound up in a bad situation, and the devil got the best of him, and the, the Roman guard and, and all the religious people got the best of him, and he wound up crucified. That's not the story, but the story is that Jesus willingly went. He knew that he had to be crucified. He knew that he had to become the once and for all sacrifice for all mankind because the sacrifices of the Old Testament did not work. They did not last. He said, I am the lamb. I am the one. To be sacrificed. And so he willingly is crucified on the cross at Calvary as the pure spotless lamb once and for all. And he and the sacrifice, he, he takes upon himself the sin of the world. And he adverts the wrath of God so that we human beings who, who deserve death because of our sin could have life. And in his death and his resurrection, Jesus, he defeats the power of sin, death, the serpent, and he provides redemption for all those who put their faith, hope, and trust in his saving work. It's been said like this before, that at the cross, there was a beautiful exchange. And this is the power of redemption. This is the power of that, that third predominant narrative in redemption. That at the cross, there was this beautiful exchange where, where Jesus, he got what we deserve. And we get what we don't deserve. Hello? At the cross, Jesus got what you and I I know every one of us think we're pretty good, but in reality, we're not that good, right? We, we may do good things. We may do good things every once in a while, but in truthfulness, in reality, we have such selfish, carnal natures, right? And a lot of times, even when we think we're doing good, a lot of times, if we're honest, we're, we're actually doing it for how we feel because it does something in us. What is that? That's the flesh. That's selfishness. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he said this, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, but God puts himself where we deserve to be. And so we see this, this beautiful realm where Jesus comes and he provides this redemption. And then as you read that story of Jesus resurrected from the grave, uh, and I think it's Matthew 27, 
you, you see that at the, at the crucifixion, that at that time, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn in two. And you got to understand that the veil, it represented what? It represented separation of man from the presence of God. It represented the breaking of shalom. It represented the breaking of mankind, creation, being in perfect right relationship with their creator. And so at the cross, the veil was torn. And the writer of Hebrews, he says, this is why we can now what? We can boldly come before God. We can enter into, we can come boldly into his, into his presence. Why? Because the veil has been torn. And Jesus came and provided redemption so that the kingdom of heaven, the shalom, could once again be restored. Now, the fourth narrative, and this is where I want to kind of camp out for the next several moments. Really what I want to discuss this morning is this narrative of restoration. This brings us to this place of restoration. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, says this, after Jesus has resurrected, says this, and Jesus came and said to them, guys, shouldn't say guys, but I'm saying guys, paraphrasing now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, right? Remember in Matthew 4, when the enemy tempts Jesus, he shows them the kingdoms of what? The world. And he, in essence, he's saying, these are mine. They were surrendered over to me in the garden, right? And so Jesus defeats the power of death and sin, and he comes to his disciples, and he says, guys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and on earth are, are mine. I've done what I came to do. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. He's saying shalom is restored. The, the Garden of Eden mandate is once again, the authority has been given to you, not just in heaven, but also here on earth. And when he commissions them and he says, go, in essence, he's saying, go with the authority that I give you. I have provided redemption. Now you go and you help expand the Garden of Eden, my original plan, my father's original plan, once again, expand those boundaries and bring complete restoration to this fallen and hurtful world. And so where does, where does that bring us as the church of Jesus Christ? Where does that leave us? as Red Door Church, as Exodus Church, as Genesis Church, where does that put us? Because Jesus has provided redemption. Redemption is huge. But then what is our responsibility and our role in helping see restoration fulfilled and helping see the Garden of Eden mandate expanded into a lost and hurting Bloomington? Where does that leave the church? See, you have to understand that he spoke of the kingdom being here, but he also, yes, spoke of a a greater kingdom to come. And it wasn't a point this and point that, but it was a beginning and an increasing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, it was, I'm here, I'm announcing, it started, it's inaugurated, but it's then to grow, to expand, to encompass. And the church is called, like Adam and Eve, to cultivate, to help expand, to help, to help grow. So let's go on here. Where does that leave us? What is, the, what is the church, what is our mandate in announcing this good news? Not just of redemption, and that's important, but also of restoration. Well, number one, I believe this. And it's very practical, very simple. 
But we as a church, and when I say church, not just one church, but as a greater church of Jesus Christ in Bloomington, Indiana, working together in this expansion, working together in restoration, number one, we have to see that restoration is something that is to be Christ-centered, not cause-centered. Now, this is huge because there are an numerous amount of causes in our community and important causes. There are many things that need to be done in our community, but many times my fear is that the church gets so consumed with the cause that is before them in their community instead of being consumed with Christ's provided redemption, and he is the one that can also help bring restoration to their lives. Christ-centered restoration, it focuses on individuals and not cause it. It understands that more than any earthly thing that they could receive, they need Jesus' restoration. Ron Sider, who wrote the book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and we had him at Genesis Church several years ago when we were doing the homeless shelter. He came and he spoke to us, and he says this in his, in, in his book, and he also said it uh, in, his, in his lecture that he gave to us. He said this, it does no good to help relieve a temporary hardship in a person's life and yet have no concern for the eternal worth of that individual. See, many times the church is so consumed with the cause that we forget, you know what? Unless there is a restoration in their life with their creator, the causes will always continue. Now, Ron Sider was one of the leading voices in the evangelical world prior to all the movement of social activism and all this stuff. He was the one saying, we need to get more involved in this stuff. And yet he's saying, it does no good if we just provide food, if we just provide shelter. Do those things. But at the same time, he said it in the lecture, he said, give them Jesus. Because he is the hope of the world. Secondly, where does this leave us as a church? It's very important that we do acts of justice generously and selflessly. And helping to cultivate this shalom, this Garden of Eden in our community. Let's just start with, with Bloomington. Helping to expand the boundaries of, of shalom in our community. We as the Church of Jesus Christ have to do acts of justice and kindness generously and selflessly. Why do I say that? Because a lot of times, we, we saw it in the, in the Genesis shelter, we saw it in many other things we've become involved in, is that many people get involved with acts of justice because of their own ulterior motives. The, the secular world, at the core, I believe, at the core of secular ide ideology on social justice really lies an ambition of selfishness. Because many times people get involved in doing good for those that are less fortunate because it does something for them. And what happens is they get involved and when they don't necessarily get the response out of the people they're helping out that they think they deserve, they get frustrated, they get discouraged, they give up. They quit, and they go on to the next cause. But see, as the body of Christ, as a church, we're called to be different. We don't help the poor and help bring restoration to this world because it somehow does something for us. Right? Otherwise, that's selfishness. Now, is there a good feeling that sometimes comes? Absolutely. But we don't do it for that. We do it whether we feel anything at all. In Galatians 6 9, it says, Do not grow weary in doing good. Luke 14, it says that don't, the parable there of the, of the thieves, don't expect reward when you do good. 1 John 4 19, we love because Christ has first loved us. 
And so in helping to bring restoration to our community, we have to understand that we do these acts of justice generously and selflessly. We don't expect in return. If you're expecting something to happen, can I say this? You will be let down. You will be disappointed. You will be discouraged. We're above that. We're above that, right? We are above that as a church. We do it because Christ has first loved us. Thirdly, we understand what it means to live in the now but not yet in the sense of the kingdom. When Jesus came to the earth, he announced and he said the kingdom is here, it is now. The kingdom of heaven, the shalom, was inaugurated. But he also spoke of a greater kingdom to come. So what, what does this mean for us as a church? Simply this. Number one, don't devalue what the Bible teaches about justice and shalom. Don't devalue A lot of people, they, they devalue it. They say, well, the kingdom of heaven is off, far. Jesus will come, make all things right, and then it will be done. But they completely ignore what the scripture talks about and the commissioning, and going in the authority, and seeing, seeing restoration fulfilled, and so therefore they devalue it. But at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, don't over-realize what the Bible teaches about justice and shalom. We as a church of Jesus Christ, we live in what some people would call a time between the times. We are in the point of restoration. And remember, restoration is not point and then end point. It's point growing, expanding getting bigger, increasing, right? This is the language that the scripture uses. And so we, we have to understand that we're not going to see full restoration happen all the time. But do we quit? Do we give up, right? Do we throw in the white flag and say, well, we tried that, didn't work. But we'll just wait till Jesus comes. Let's pack our bags and wait for heaven, right? Heaven's coming, I'm glory bound, right? We're going to heaven and one day it'll all be all right. Well, Amen, yes. But actually, when you look at Scripture, it speaks of a restoration of, of all things. And so we believe for the ever-increasing government of God, expanding the time between the times, the now but the not yet. It's here, it's now, but there's a greater measure to come. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's an increase to come. And we as a church, we have to understand that. Okay, and then fourthly, here we go. We understand that ultimately, and this is where it helps us, and understand the time between the time. We understand that ultimately, only Jesus can restore true shalom. Right? We do our best. We co-labor with Christ. We continue at it. But ultimately, we also look forward to a day when Jesus comes and he makes all things new. And for me, what this does, it takes me back to Romans. In the first verse I read, it provides hope. Because sometimes in ministry, in doing good, in pastoring, and in being involved with the homeless community, and helping those that are less fortunate in, in any type of a ministry structure, it's so easy to get discouraged because we're not seeing things happen the way we would like to see them happen. But when I have hope that ultimately there's a day coming when Jesus will come and he will make all things right. Once that there will be a, a completion of this restoration. It gives me hope. It reminds me that Tim Woodcock in and of himself can, can only do so much. But man, when I can continually come before people and say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do my best in this community to make Bloomington the city of God, to make Bloomington a better place. But at the same time, let me introduce you to Jesus. 
tell you about one who can bring ultimate healing. And when that relationship vertically is restored, I believe in Bloomington, then we begin to see all the relationships horizontally. And a lot of times in the church, we get the one before the other. We're trying to bring restoration here without pointing people to the restoration that needs to happen vertically. Right? Only Jesus can ultimately bring true shalom. Why don't we stand? I know I rambled a lot, read a lot of scripture verses, but I'm hoping that, I'm not just hoping, but I'm, I'm praying that as we leave here today, we, we leave here spurred on, encouraged, built up, but also with a great understanding that we have a major role in seeing this expansion happen. The church has a major role in seeing God's kingdom fulfilled in Bloomington, Indiana. And it is exciting. It is awesome. It is beautiful. When you see lives restored, when we did our homeless shelter, we probably saw between four or 500 people come through there. You know, we, we might have two or three that are doing well, that are off substance, that are now working, that have their own place, that are off the streets. We had about four or 500 come through. We might have two or three, and there may be two in this church here, you know, but they're, they, they're doing well. They get it. Is it worth it? Now, if you're looking at statistics, well, I don't know. If you're looking at church growth numbers, like, uh, yeah, we're going to cancel that program, right? And this is what the church in America does so often. Well, the numbers didn't actually end up the way we thought they would, so we're done with that. But when you're looking at the sake of the kingdom and restoration being fulfilled and expanded, we say, God, thank you for those two or three. Thank you for those lives that are changed that are different. And thank you that we, as Red Door, as Exodus, as Genesis, we, we got to play a part in that. That's an honor. That's a great honor. We got to be involved. You, he didn't need us, but he chose to use us. And really, that comes down to the mystery of the kingdom. Why he chooses to use the church, I don't know, but it's what he does. And he wants to see his kingdom grow and expand. The shalom has been restored. Let's take them to the one who brings that right relationship once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, even though maybe I jumped all over with the scripture this morning and maybe I can only articulate and communicate.